Um, this is Chris Hunsinger, and I am now your hostess, but I don't have the most us today. In any event, without further ado, I want to, um, I'm going to tell you about Tony, and Tony will introduce Joe. Tony has been blind since birth and got his elementary education at the Overbrook School for Blind Children. He graduated for Moravian College and also uh, a graduate of University of Pennsylvania Computer Science Program for the Disabled. Um, he worked in the disability area for part of his career and worked in city government in um, uh, in, in Lehigh County for the, the county taking um, taking care of uh, computer access issues. Um, in the Office of Information and Technology. And um, Tony will introduce Joe now. We all know Tony because he's so active in PCB. Take it away, Tony. Thank you, Chris. Good morning, everyone. This morning, I would ask you to welcome our guest, Joe Corey, who will discuss the development of what some of you might consider his extraordinary sensory perceptions. The development of these perceptions was a result of a decision that Joe made to hitchhike across the country shortly after losing his vision at the age of 19. When he returned home here to Allentown, after his journey of exploration and discovery, he made quite a successful life for himself in the automotive industry with a specialty in automatic transmissions, and after establishing himself in business, he enrolled and graduated from Muhlenberg College. Joe is now 87 years of age. He lives in Lexington, Virginia, and has rewritten his own version of his life's events in Seeing Without Eyes, One Man's Journey Out of Darkness. Joe, thank you for joining us. And Joe, you can unmute if you're muted now. Good morning. Good morning. I want to thank you all for allowing me the privilege to attend this presentation. It has been 14 years since I appeared before a community group after being reelected as treasurer to a community association in Maryland. Of course, over with the advanced age, I have uh, tended to lose my communication skills. Uh, and uh, I, we politely call it uh, senior moments. I hope that uh, I can apologize in advance and ask your forgiveness if this occurs. I thank you. We will conduct this presentation as an interview. So, Joe, let's start out talking about why you decided on this book, first written by an author, and then you chose to rewrite your own version of events. Why did that happen? I was uh, sitting at home one day and received a phone call from... Uh, a man who would, he was a stranger who identified himself as Lou Briganti. Uh, he did not tell me he was an author. Uh, he uh, informed me that he had uh, heard from his uh, men's group 
I had crossed the, country, the United States in, when I was 19 with $28 in my pocket. And um, again, I'm having one of those moments. Uh, and uh, uh, in the middle of winter. And at that time, I had been uh, giving snippets of my journey to people along the way, but never the whole story. Actually, my wife, who had put together a number of these snippets, had some idea of what I had experienced. Uh, often, someone would come up and say that they uh, had just gone on a camping trip explaining their experiences, and I might quit. Well, well, I took a three-month camping trip when I was 19, but I forgot to take along a tent. Uh, or uh, one of my friends in Allentown, who was the owner of a Volkswagen dealership uh, in a community group, was explaining his diet that he was on and how he had to 25 times uh, before swallowing. And uh, on the way home, I mentioned to my wife, well, there was a time when I chewed my food 50 times before swallowing, but I wasn't on a diet. Uh, in any event, uh, he asked to come over and I consented and I thought he might just here for a cup of coffee and uh, uh, be gone within an hour. Four hours later, he was still here, come back a week later. In any event, he revealed me to me on the third time that uh, uh, he was an author and would like to write a book. I asked him, uh, prior to his telling me about the book, I asked him whether he could write a synopsis of my life for my grandchildren so that uh, and great-grandchildren so that if they experienced blindness, they would know it was not the end of their life. Uh, in any event, uh, he completed the book, and afterward, it was published, I started receiving calls from all over the world, uh, including the United States. Not all of them uh, from the line. They were cited. Uh, matter of fact, five authors called me and asked why the book didn't just stand on its own without uh, the, uh, the author introducing the young man into the situation. I didn't think too much of it until I did receive uh, some other information, which did uh, uh, I decided that I should do something about uh, letting you all know uh, the how, what, and why. And that's what prompted me to, to write the book, although I did not believe that I could. Uh, an author gave me a, a uh, title, Seeing Without Eyes, and uh, the result of the book is As You See It. So... You decided then to rewrite so that you could tell your story in your own words and leave out some of the uh, literary devices that the the author had previously used. So, Joe, you lost your vision rather quickly at the age of, of 19. And I'm just curious as to whether uh, to that point in your life, what did you know about blindness? Did you know other blind people? I have to be careful because in 1952, it wasn't, and 54, and uh, prior to that, it wasn't the information that we know today. Uh, in my grammar school education, uh, I had 
and taught to be compassionate to those who had a disability. Uh, I knew that the blind used a cane and uh, either a guide dog, which we called the seeing eye dog at that time. We generally didn't call it uh, a guide dog. Uh, and uh, that Braille was used uh, for reading and writing. Uh, and uh, generally, when we were solicited to buy something, it was uh, stated that when we bought a broom uh, it was or, or wicker furniture, it had been uh, manufactured by the blind in a sheltered community. Uh, I had never met a blind man uh, before uh, at that time or until I became blind. Um, so I had never I had never uh, heard of or at that time known that there were there would have been uh, professionals such as uh, medical doctors or attorneys that were practicing or for that matter um, in my field auto mechanics that were blind. So you entered the Air Force, you suddenly lose your vision, and now you're back home, and you make this decision to hitchhike across the country. Uh, What led you to that decision? After all, you had established a business. You had the gas station. Well, um, I just did not want to... uh, be dependent on anyone. I had felt that experience from the time I was 10 years old. And of course, I depended on, upon my parents. But um, I was torn that I could not see a future for myself. And uh, these, as a blind person, my parents would have, uh, uh, had they known that I was going blind or at the time I left Allentown, excuse me, <clears throat> at the time I left Allentown, I was totally blind. Uh, and uh, I decided that I had to make my own way in life as a blind person. And I knew that because of uh, my feelings that my friends might be overly protective and also my family, uh, it would limit what I could possibly do. So, you, Joe, you make this decision to leave Allentown and, and hitchhike across the country at, at the age of 19. I'm, I'm curious, would you have made that decision at another time in your life, say, say 10 years later? Well, my circumstances would have been quite different. I might have been married. I might have had children at that point in time. And certainly uh, that would have influenced anything I would have done. However, if my circumstances had been exactly the same, I can tell you I probably would have made the same decision. Hmm. So when you reveal this to your father, he's accepting of it and and so forth. But um, how did others around you react? other family members, uh, particularly your sister? Well, other than my immediate family members, I never revealed it to any of my friends for even after I returned to Pennsylvania. uh, None of them knew that I shouldn't say none of them. Some, most of them knew 
did not know that I was blind. Uh, and if they did know that I was having serious eye problems, uh, they none of them knew that I was totally blind. However, um, my parents would have been very protective and my family had I uh, revealed to them to the extent of it. My sister, who was pregnant at the time, only knew that I was having eyesight problems because I called her and explained to her that I could not leave the house because my apartment, because of uh, uh, the light being too bright outside and could she get me the darkest sunglasses that were possible and uh, bring them to me so that I could leave the house, uh, my apartment. In any event, uh, my brother had just come back from Korea and I didn't want to burden him with that. Uh, um, my uh, oldest brother uh, had some idea of what was happening because he had driven me to New York to see an ophthalmologist uh, and uh, I believe was in the room when the ophthalmologist told me that uh, there was nothing could be done, uh, just go home and live my life. Uh, we didn't talk about it on the way back in the car, uh, although I did tell him that I was going to sell the business because he had loaned me the money, and I wanted to be sure that uh, I would, could repay him. Um, and uh, But we never talked about that. Uh, he had just been married as I when I left Allentown, and uh, again, I didn't want to burden him with uh, the fact that I could not see at all. Hmm. So you set out, but listen to this passage from your book. The minute my sister dropped me off and drove away, I remember my mind went into a kind of overdrive. I didn't know whether to just stand there and stick my thumb out or to start walking. That uncertainty was its own kind of emergency for me, a huge rush of fear that really paralyzed me for what seemed like minutes just standing there in the cold by the side of the road. I remember that even as the wind was telling me that I wasn't dressed for the weather, my insides felt even colder than my skin. So, Joe, what strikes me about this passage is you do make this decision, and for all the reasons that you've discussed to this point, but it seems to me that you really hadn't thought it out as to the specifics of, of living your life day to day on the road. Would you comment on that? Well, during the three months that I was losing my sight and when it finally was it culminated in, in what it did, I had given a lot of thought about the way I could possibly live. However, when I made the decision to actually leave, it was very quick. I Had I not even uh, thought about packing some clothing to take with me, I just wanted to leave Allentown, leave my friends and family, and just leave it up to whatever occurred. I knew that I probably would be overprotected at home and that I had to uh, leave and find my own way in life. Uh, whatever occurred would occur. And again, I hadn't anticipated the weather. I hadn't anticipated anything to eat or drink. 
again, uh, my only recollection is that I did decide to pack some clothing and uh, take a suitcase. So you set out on this, this journey, and it seems to me the first coping ability that you developed is echolocation. And from reading the book, it seems that e- echolocation was at the, uh, was the fundamental that started you on your abilities to develop, uh, what I would say your extraordinary, uh, sensory perceptions. Talk to us about how you first came to discover echolocation. Well, I believe if I would have been taught how to echolocate, I would have never accomplished what I had in life. Uh, My first uh, impression of of hearing sounds, I happened to be uh, sitting off of the road quite a bit of distance off, about 100 feet, and I was sitting on a boulder and suddenly heard a rustle in a bush. Oh, I, at that time, I didn't know it was a bush. I heard it rustle, and I was frozen in fear. By the way, fear was what prompted me uh, to have to develop my intense concentration. And at that time, I was thinking of everything that was going on around me, the air temperature, the uh, whatever I could sense to know where I was and uh, what I what was surrounding me. Uh, when I heard the, the rustle, rustling noise, I thought it was an animal and that it would probably would probably be attacked, either a bear or some uh, fierce animal. Uh, in other words, I was just frozen in fear. And uh, I think about an hour passed and I heard a bell. And at a few seconds later, I heard the same rustle. When I investigated it, it turned out that there was a very large bush next to an outcropping of rock. And uh, I decided to sleep there by the boulder that I was sitting on with my head on the boulder. And about an hour later, I heard the bell again, and at that time, I could hear the vibration from the rock because my head was right next to it. Uh, I didn't think too much of it that day, and uh, a couple days later, I was walking through, uh, I had been lost, uh, and I was walking in circles or for, apparently for miles, and uh, I stepped on a branch that had a twig, and I perceived a sound in front of me. At that time, I decided to investigate what the sound was, and it turned out to be a tree. Uh, Later, I started to notice when I was standing along the highway when vehicles would pass and I was walking, I suddenly heard, again, a similar sound as that tree, but it was different. And I walked over, and sure enough, it was a tree. So I stood there for probably 10 or 15 minutes as cars passed, and I started to notice different, slightly different sounds from the same tree. And I stayed there long enough to hear so many different vehicles pass and different sounds that they were creating. 
and noticed that there was a common sound that I could hear from the tree that identified it as a tree, not as something else. Uh, after that, I really paid attention and concentrated as the vehicles passed. I started to notice that I could perceive, again, not by sight, but by sound, uh, objects that were alongside of the road as they passed them. And gradually, I was able to develop uh, my concentration. Again, not that I felt that I had better hearing. I don't feel that that was the case. I, I believe that my hearing was just what it was. It was just that I was concentrating enough to be able to put together and assimilate other sensory perceptions that gave me the ability to be able to perceive objects as they passed. I also could start to hear, although not as clearly, objects that were behind me that were created by uh, the vehicle before it got to me. And that's how I developed uh, my echolocation. I don't think I would have been able to do what I did if I were to have just created my own uh, sound. Now, I want to say to everyone listening, we are not going to go through all the details of Joe's journey across um, the the country and uh, his 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 way back and a lot of events in his life uh, because there's there are so many details to cover and we've got a short time here. But I want to move ahead, Joe, and and let me say uh, that we will put a the new version of Joe's book. Uh, as a link from uh, our website in, in the next week or two. It will be up there, and we'll keep it up for a couple months. I didn't ask Chris that, but I'm sure she'll give us permission to do that. But at, at, at any rate, I want to get to the topic which is most, uh, I would say, puzzling, uh, that, that provides people the most consternation about uh, your your book, and about you, your life, and that is your ability to drive. And before I ask you to talk about that ability, I will tell you all that Joe and I are very distantly related and that I always knew that uh, Joe drove. Um, I, I don't know why it wasn't more puzzling to me other than to say that uh, when I would ask my my half sister and half older brother about it, they would say, "Well, he has eye problems, but somehow he's able to drive." And so, Joe, talk to us about driving as someone with no vision at all. Well, I, I must preclude this by again repeating what I said earlier. Had I had to create my own sounds, I would have never been able to drive. It was the fact that I was able to hear and other sounds that were created and such as passing vehicles, uh, and the numerous sounds in general commerce. And these sounds over the time of my journey, and this journey had totally uh, changed my perspective on life as I was 
proceeding along for the three months and noticing and concentrating on so many of my sensory perceptions and deeply concentrating and realizing that so much of what we do is uh, using our senses in autopilot. And uh, the combination of hearing so many other objects creating um, echoes and creating a so-called library of sound uh, and sort of uh, knowing that I had to remember everything that was I was hearing and the concentration was so intense that uh, I was able to create an image in my brain of uh, thought or, or an actual image uh, that uh, allowed me to be able to feel confident to be behind the wheel of a car. I think in the, when you read the book, you'll know that uh, my initial perception was probably two, two months into my journey uh, when I actually did drive a car. Uh, and then again, later when I did get to California. Um, and then it was a matter of honing that experience. I always felt that while I was driving, uh, if, the day, if the day ever came that I would question, even question the fact that could I have caused an accident or missed an, uh, seeing an object, and I'm using the term seeing as it didn't occur in my brain, um, that that I would immediately stop driving, which I did thirty some year, thirty odd years later, uh, thirty five years later. Uh, there was a day when I questioned whether there was a dog on a sidewalk uh, as I was passing. And those that are familiar in uh, the Allentown area, Martin Luther King Driveway, uh, I went under the A Street Bridge. Uh, there was a sidewalk that I had never perceived any animal or person on. Until that one day I was passing, I perceived a dog that was ahead of, uh, further ahead. But the distance between myself and the dog questioned whether, if the dog would have run out, whether I would have hit the dog. I concluded that I would not have hit the dog. But when I did get home, I threw the keys on the table and told my wife I was not driving anymore. Now, Joe, about your driving. And honestly, if I had read this book, never knowing you, I, I would have my serious doubts, but I do know you drove and, and my, my brother drove with you. You have tried to explain to me in detail what it took to drive. And you said, yes, you, you, you kept the windows down. You were listening. But it was much more than just hearing that allowed you to drive. Correct? Yes. Yeah. So, so talk about that. Talk about the feel of the road under you, the amount of concentration. Yeah. Well, just approaching an intersection or traffic light. Uh, keep in mind, I could not see anything. So approaching an intersection might require as many as 20 or 30, for that matter, um, 
options as to what to do. And uh, it quickly was determined by uh, the number of buildings, for instance, around the intersection, what I might be hearing of the intersection, the flow of traffic, the way I was, uh, the, the uh, lane that I was in, and whether the traffic was one way or two ways traffic. Uh, there's so many, uh, it, we could spend hours just sitting, talking about it. As I said, I tried to, uh, in my presentation, uh, sit down and de describe uh, leaving my home on Cedar Crest Boulevard and getting to Fish Hatchery Road, where I would make a right-hand turn, I would have encountered, again, as the years passed, they uh, increased the number of traffic lights. But uh, let's say there were two or three traffic lights that I would encounter all along the way just to get there, and it was eight miles uh, to my uh, business, um, I had only traveled uh, two miles, and in writing it, uh, I had uh, described everything uh, in 44 or 46 pages, and then realized that there were so many uh, uh, weather uh, conditions that modified it. And as I was writing, I <laughs> achieved another 16 pages just doing that. Uh, just yeah, I, I, I do remember I, I do remember Lorraine talking about the fact that you did not like to drive in rain, for instance. Yes. Yeah. The, the rain uh, did create problems for me because of the resonance of the droplets uh, were uh, although I could uh, your brain is a wonderful filter. Uh, your intellect, your mind, actually let me specify. Uh, more specifically, the, the mind is a wonderful filter. It takes what is important at the time and uh, uh, allows you to hear what is important and what is not important. But rain complicated it for me. I was able to drive in the rain. And unusually, I could drive in snow, but rain was a problem. You know, Joe, has it ever occurred to you why you, you look at yourself, what you were able to do, and so forth? H have you ever questioned why so many other blind people weren't able to achieve that uh, ability of perception? I believe that mo many blind people realize that they have abilities that they can't talk about because people will not accept what they're saying, that it would be extraordinary and that they would be unusual for fear of that. I believe that there are many, many extraordinary blind people in the world who just do not tell others what they are doing. They just do it. And uh, uh, I don't think that I am extraordinary. I'm a average person with average abilities and average sensory perceptions. I've been asked, well, your hearing had to be great. I say, no, it isn't the fact that my hearing was what it was. It was just that I was using it. I was not operating my, all of my other senses uh, here again, contributed to my ability to 
appear as a sighted person to many people. I operated uh, business for, uh, well, blind for over 40 years, but in business 50, close to 50 years. Uh, the 40 years that I was totally blind, uh, I realized very early on that had I revealed to them, to others that I was blind, they would uh, uh, not have uh, come to me uh, to have their vehicle repaired. Uh, and uh, as I say, I feel more, many, many people who are blind, uh, again, have developed certain areas of their perceptions that others would feel were uh, extraordinary. Well, Joe, uh, I what I find also interesting, and this isn't in in the book, but I'll, I'll add to this, was the um, rebuffing that you received from the uh, associations for the blind here in the area. You really did not f- fit the model, and you did teach some um, small engine repair. You had that class, I think, in the. Uh, uh, late sixties, something like that, um, at the Allentown branch. Uh, but in general, uh, you offered to teach more, but were rejected. And I always think that uh, agencies have an idea of what they want their blind people to be. And I also feel that, um, we're often taught by the sighted who don't experience our world so they don't know what things are important for instance teaching echolocation um and and i know that there was a group of o&m instructors in the california area that worked hard with kids and worked uh teaching them and learning from them about echolocation to the point where kids were riding these bikes in and out of parking lots and on streets and were, uh, were, were perfectly safe. We have a few people in our own organization. Um, I think Tom Bergender, I can think of who, who had a pretty good uh, sense of uh, ability in echolocation. He's, he's talked about that from time to time. Now we'll open the floor to questions. Uh, but first, I want to read a question that was sent to me uh, by Irene. And Irene writes, um, with your strong ability to hear echoes bouncing off of objects, do you hear lots of noise in your head? I think that's an interesting question. Uh, no, I, I, your, your brain, or may I say mind, your intellect is a great filter for your, uh, for what your understanding is of sound. Uh, you've experienced it on a daily basis, uh, where you might be listening to a program and there'll be a, a noise in the background. Your, your brain will, your mind will tune it out or it will decrease it. And the more you concentrate on someone talking to you, uh, it can actually disappear. However, sounds for everyone are, all sounds are important. Uh, a, a sound that you perceive of as a noise 
has meaning for someone else. Uh, and this is where I think it, it is very important. Uh, you may hear a pile driver constructing a building, and you know how loud, loud that can be. For you, it is noise. But for an experienced, skilled engineer, he may be listening to that same noise or sound and perceive whether he is going through soil or the type of rock or stone that he is encountering, or even the depth of uh, how much the pile driver has achieved. Uh, and uh, he may also uh, detect whether the uh, unit is operating properly uh, from, it, from the sound that he is hearing. So again, for you, it is noise. For another person, it is information. The same thing in my field. An auto mechanic hears a knock, uh, a, a slap, uh, um, a whine. Again, for you, it is some noise, but for the uh, skilled auto mechanic, he will detect where the uh, sound is coming from without even opening the hood. He may know that it's a valve tap. He may know that it is piston slap and something that will require future maintenance or uh, I should say just maintenance or uh, future repair. All right. Do we have, we have time for maybe one question, Chris? Right now I don't have any hands up, but I have a question. Is that right if I ask it? Go ahead, please. Joe, I'm just absolutely shocked. I'm a senior and I cannot even begin to envision myself as a young blind person doing what you did. So I'm just, uh, in awe. I would like to know, do you, did you have a cane or have any kind of, of mobility aid when you were doing these things, when you were going across country, um, hitchhiking? When, when I left, I didn't want any person who picked me up because of my own safety. So I never carried a cane, nor did I even know the use of a cane at that point in time. Uh, and uh, I didn't use a cane until uh, 1994. So, wow. I, uh, so uh, I was totally free of a cane. It just said the con intense concentration. I can't again stress that enough. Concentration, awareness of your surroundings, and an open mind uh, that would assimilate all of those sensory perceptions. And I'm including the 11 sensory perceptions, your introspection uh, in that. And uh, it didn't come right away. I mean, it took me my lifetime, 60, I'm 67 years now that I've been blind. And I still learn something new every day. And of course, with my uh, hearing going bad and, uh, uh, you know, our sensory perceptions, I try to uh, uh, adapt now to the loss of those sensory perceptions. I, I just would ask you one more quick question. I still don't have any hands or I wouldn't be talking. Um, do you think that the fact that you did see for a while helped you to know a little more about the world that you were navigating than, say, I would have as a person who was born blind? Definitely uh, the fact that I was able to see before helped me in the transition uh, because I still had a visual memory of objects, 
When I did start hearing the objects, the, the uh, silent objects around me, uh, it sort of made a better sense when I tried to assimilate it into actually perceiving uh, the shape of the object. Uh, there wasn't any problem in using echolocation when it was just a square or a round object, but to try to perceive the shape and then to understand very important when you, what you don't hear, such as uh, trying to perceive a donut uh, you uh, using echolocation. You have to understand that it is important to not hear a sound within a sound. I don't know if that makes sense. It does to me because I, I um, do understand echolocation. I too use it. So yes. Well, I nope. I have no hands. Okay, and and uh, we're we're out of time, but I want to thank Joe. Joe, you know yes. the one thing I never have uh, thanked you for is, and I don't know if you remember this. I think you do that. Uh, I was about seven or eight years old, and you gave me a Japanese Braille writer. Do you remember that? Yes, I had. Yeah. I and had, I, I, I ended up taking it to Overbrook for a while. Yes, I had uh, known your brother Jimmy, of course, for most of my life. And uh, I had known that you were blind. And when I finished college, uh, again, I had used it quite a bit in college, but uh, my Braille uh, wasn't something, there weren't tech, technical books or anything created in Braille. So I was gradually not using Braille and uh, decided that I wanted to come to you. Uh, I had also some uh, maps. I don't know whether you did receive them. They were quite large uh, tactile maps that you could feel the world uh, I I have them to this day. Oh, well, this day. Uh, I'm glad you did. And, uh, <laughs> and that's why I'm such a lover of maps. Joe, I thank you so much uh, for spending your, your time with us and trying to tell us a story that I think most will find incredible. Uh, there will be doubters, but what can I say? Read the, read the book when we put the link up. Well, I uh, thank you also, and I... I want to again stress, honestly, that is every item that is in the book is true. I, I can't stress that enough. And it is not because it is incredible. It is just a matter of using what you already have, but being aware of them. Thank you. Thank you, Joe. And Chris. I thank you both. And I want to say one thing. Uh, I believe that some people have extraordinary talents in every field. Um, the people with perfect pitch, none of the rest of us can possibly sort out how they can tell uh, a D flat from a E flat. I mean, a deep flat from a, a, a quarter tone higher. Um, and the people who have these really extraordinary echolocation skills are people who just may have a slightly different way of um, processing in their brains. And I do think, as Joe said, that having had vision, you can put different interpretations on the sounds. Um, I certainly notice when I'm in a car driving along that um, 
I don't equate the changes in sound with brush or trees or whatever, because I have had not seen that relationship between trees and sound as I'm driving along a road. Uh, so I can certainly understand that someone who has seen it could put that fundamental piece of information, those two fundamental pieces of information together and make them make sense. And I interrupted you, Tony, and if you had something else to say, I'm sorry. Um, you can chime in if you like, but otherwise we'll go on to our next presenter. Okay. Thank you, Chris. You're welcome. Our next presenter is LAMP, the Library for Accessible Media uh, for Pennsylvanians. Now, I thought we were only going to get Andrea Lemoyne, but Don Saccone is here, too, and we all know Don from years gone by. He's the outreach specialist at the Pittsburgh side of LAMP, and Andrea is the outreach specialist in Philadelphia on their side. She's new at this position, and so Dawn is breaking her in with a tough audience because you know we all throw brickbats and uh, stones all the time in this organization. No, uh, we don't do that. But um, Andrea is here to present for... Um, for um, LAMP, telling us about all the things that they're doing. And I understand that Andrea just got her, um, I guess it's a master's in library science degree, so um, hopefully they taught her something about being an outreach coordinator as well as how to file books on the right shelf and how to use, um, how to use um, digital assets. Thank you so, so much, Christine. That's a very warm and lovely welcome. Um, again, my name's Andrea Lemoines, and I'm from the Library of Accessible Media for Pennsylvanians, formerly the Library of the Blind and Physically Handicapped. And yes, I do work with Don Saccone, which all of you, I'm sure, love and are familiar with. He has been great with teaching me um, about outreach and about uh, the outreach that he's done for decades. So in my presentation today, I'm going to give you um, a brief overview of LAMP services, which I, he told me many of you are familiar with, as Christine said. And then I'm going to tell you about a new of the few and exciting changes that have happened with our organization, along with why we changed our name. Um, so as Christine said, I am in Philadelphia. And um, the lamp here is associated with the Free Library of Philadelphia. Um, and we are part of a statewide initiative. And we work with, um, as I said, y'all know, Don, who is in Pittsburgh. And um, he's with part of the Carnegie Public Library out in Pittsburgh. So LAMP is a free public library service. And we're available to any eligible Pennsylvania resident who has difficulty reading standard print because of visual, physical, or reading disability. And we are a part of a federal program um, that came into law in 1931. And by 1934, um, we started you know, working with talking book records, phonographs, um, all those um, great um, vinyl records were being distributed as talking books. Um, the available materials we have now include audiobooks, audio magazines, audio playback equipment, digital audiobook downloads, braille books and downloads, large print books, audio described DVD movies, 
tactile and braille early literacy kits. And we now have Wi-Fi spots for borrowing too, to help address people who do not have access to the internet. Um, also, just as a reminder, we are a public library, so we serve people of all ages, um, just like any public library would. So we have materials for young children, youth, and adults. So our digital audiobook cartridges contain multiple title downloads onto a flash drive cartridge and are played on a machine provided by the library. So our talking book machine, the cartridges that many of you may be familiar with, we can now put about six or seven books on those cartridges. Those digital audiobooks can also be downloaded onto a personal device, such as a smartphone or a tablet. Um, and we have a BARD system, and I'll go into that a little bit later. So I just want to remind people that our services are completely free, and they are free by mail. So most of our um, materials are by mail, but we do have two locations, again, one in Philadelphia and one in Pittsburgh where people can stop by. But everything available by mail comes in these very handy mailing containers, especially the digital cartridges um, that need to be, you know, replaced whenever you get uh, new books sent to you. Um, the, the cartridges come with a mailing card that can be removed and discarded, or it can actually be flipped over um, so the item can be mailed back to us. Um, so it's a very easy and convenient way to get the materials mailed for free directly to our users. So to talk a little bit more about BARD, it is our Braille and audio reading download service. So digital audiobooks are downloaded to a patron's personal device, such as an iPhone, an iPad, or Android smartphone or tablet. Um, for outreach purposes, I have it downloaded onto my um, Android phone, and it's a great resource. So accessibility features on these devices enable users with visual or physical disabilities to fully access the information in a way that works best for them. Um, as Christine said, I am new and I've very much been exploring this app, Bard, and I am so impressed with it, especially the availability of materials. I love the magazines that are on it. Um, also, quite a few materials are um, being downloaded in different languages. So the Library of Congress is trying to make um, as much of these uh, materials accessible as possible. So many books and magazines are now available in Spanish. Um, they are adding, I know they're adding French. And also I saw that they are also adding um, Mandarin to the list of languages to make sure that we have as many materials available to as many people as possible. So it is easy to register for BARD. Um, I would say the best way to do it, if I take it all of you are in Pennsylvania, um, if you do not receive our services, you can definitely give us a call. Um, I'll say the number a few times as I'm giving the presentation, but I'm also happy to share it with Christine and others who can maybe share it with everyone who's attending. Um, so in order to like receive our services or sign up for them, and especially to register for BARD, you can give us a call at toll-free 1-800-242-0586. And again, 1-800-242-0586. So along with the digital audiobooks and magazines that we have through BARD, 
we have the very uh, much more typical line of resources. So we have um, our large print books. So they are books with the large size type of either 14, 14 point or higher. Um, especially it's very um, helpful for those who are partially sighted. And we also have traditional braille volumes that are available through our, actually our location here in Lamp, Philadelphia. We have a huge catalog of braille books. Um, also refreshable braille devices, um, such as the NLSs at the National Library Service that we are actually funded in part by. Um, they're a part of the Library of Congress. Um, have upcoming e-braille machine display virtual BARD files as braille cells using pins that rise and fall as the text input changes. So I'm sure this group is very familiar with refreshable Braille. And right now the National Library Service is working on being able to loan those out. Um, as soon as that happens, we will definitely let everybody know because it's a great resource. Again, we also have described videos, um, you know, DVD movies with voiceover narration, narration of action and scenery placed in between the spoken dialogue. Um, this is new to me. I just watched my first um, described video uh, last month and it's wonderful. I was really excited about them. And I think it just helps me even learn and see more about the movies, different things as I'm a sighted person, um, things I just take for granted and not really realizing all the great details and different movies that I love. And again, a new, um, resource we have right now are the LAMP hotspots. So this is a pilot program, and this pilot program is actually based in our Pittsburgh location. The hotspot devices are available to LAMP patrons who don't have access to Wi-Fi or internet service. So all that is needed is a personal device, such as a smartphone or a tablet, to connect it to. And the hotspot devices have added tactile features, along with accompanying Braille and large print instructions and are on loan for a period of three weeks. So if people are interested in um, borrowing those and you already have an account, again, you can call us at that same number, um, toll free 1-800-242-0586 and ask us to actually borrow one of the Wi-Fi hotspots. Um, they're very easy to use. Actually, I've been using one just so I know how to use it when I go and do outreach and explain to people. Um, it instantly shows up on your phone or wireless device. And actually the hotspot name is taped to the front of the device. It tells you the network and it also tells you the password. So it's very easy to use and um, super convenient as we all know in urban and rural areas, there's a huge uh, digital divide. Um, Wi-Fi service can be very expensive. It can be very spotty. So we want to make sure that people can at least borrow the hotspots to help out with that. And again, we are a public library. We're open. We have materials and are open to all ages. And so we actually have um, tactile and Braille early literacy kits for use. Um, they're available from both of our locations and can also be mailed out. So each kit contains books in Braille and print with multi-sensory toys. Families and educators can get um, set up accounts to borrow kits for free. And kits are shipped via USPS with the free matter, the postage paid. Um, and again, you can call us at 1-800-242-0586 for more information on how to borrow the kits. Um, 
when you call us, um, if you have an if you have an account or if you want to call us to set up an account, um, I just want to let people know one of the main ways that we really work with people is through our readers advisory services. And so um, because of the way our library is set up, we want to make sure people across the state have equal accessibility to our materials. We ask folks to call us when they're actually looking for certain books, magazines, um, DVDs in order to help them find out like really what genres they enjoy, what uh, topics they want to read about. Um, and so we have a whole team of readers advisory folks who help patrons out with the books and magazines that they get. So patrons may call or email us um, and staff or professional reader advisors uh, will assist them identifying reading materials, answer any reference questions. Again, we're a public library. So if you have a reference question, just like walking into any other library, we're here to help. So you can give us a call and we can help you with any, any of your research needs. Um, we also provide instruction on accessible technology. Say, for instance, you get a talking machine, you get a hot top Wi-Fi, and you have questions, always feel free to call us, and we are here to help you walk through that. So also one of the perks that we have, which I think is pretty cool, is at the Pittsburgh location where they actually have an on-site recording studio. And so say for books that may not be as big or as popular that do not automatically become audiobooks, People can say when you call and you're talking to a reader's advisor person, say, hey, you know, I would love to have this book on audio, but I don't see it available. What can you do? And we can actually probably add it to a list of books if we get enough people who want to read it in order to be recorded by volunteers in our recording studio in Pittsburgh. And so right now, the recording studio is very much focusing on local writers, so Pennsylvania writers, um, topics about Pennsylvania, um, and recording books um, on those genres. However, we definitely take feedback from people too. We want to make sure that what people want to read is available. Again, when it comes down to it, we are a library and we're all about people living and reading and having completely like, you know, fulfilling lives and exploring topics that they are interested in. So um, always feel free to let us know what kind of books you want to read and what topics you're interested in, and we will let our recording studio um, volunteers and experts know. So uh, finally, I want to let people know about the application process in order to get um, our kind of library card. So if you have a library card um, at, you know, at your local library, particularly in Philadelphia, or in Pittsburgh, that is not the correct card. We actually run through a whole nother system through the Library of Congress, and you need to have an account with us in order to access the resources. So the application process is, um, I wanna let people know about the requirements that um, are generally held by the National Library Service, but also if people have questions, if they can receive services from us, please call us. Um, we'd rather talk to you than have people just, um, you know, opt out of the services themselves. We want everyone to have access to reading and access to reading materials. So the patron el eligibility requirements, generally for blindness, for blindness, I'm sorry, vision is 20 over 200 or less. 
or visual field of 20 degrees or less. Visual impairment, visual disabilities that make it difficult to read standard print, including conditions such as macular degeneration, cataracts, um, retinitis, and strabsimus. I'm sorry, I'm learning these new words and <laughs> please feel free to correct me if I'm saying them wrong. Um, physical disability, physical disabilities of the hands that make it difficult to hold a book or turn pages, such as a stroke, Parkinson's disease, or injury or a loss of a hand, um, deaf blindness, and also reading disabilities. So reading disabilities such as dyslexia. Um, if people have a general reading disability, we also have materials to help them um, address that disability so they are able to read. So certifying authority, we do have an application that I will share um, through a link um, online through our MyLamps webpage. Um, if people also want one mailed to them, they can call us at that same 1-800 number that I have given out. Um, if you need to call us to receive an application, you can call us again at 1-800-242-0586. Um, so we do ask that people have a kind of a certifying authority to let us know that you are eligible for um, these resources, eligible to be a patron here at our library. So eligibility must be certified by one of the following, um, doctor of medicine, doctor of osteopathy, um, many doctors, actually pretty much any doctor, psychologists, registered nurses, therapists, or professional staff at a hospital institution or public or welfare agency. And so actually the public and welfare agency very much broadens who a certifying authority is who can sign off on your application. So that can be an educator, a social worker, a caseworker, a counselor, um, a certified reading therapist, and most importantly, people who are pretty easily accessible, which is a librarian. So um, that's this actual list of certifying authorities is fairly new. Um, the National Library Service has widened who can sign off on this, and we're very excited about that. We want to make sure that as many people who need the services that we provide um, actually have access to them. And so when you get the application, just to give everyone a heads up, they're going to ask you the basic stuff that you would write down for any library card, right? They'll ask you for your address, your phone number, all those different things. And then we'll also ask for the certification of eligibility. So that's the page where the certifying authority, um, your doctor, a teacher, a social worker, a librarian would sign off um, to say that you can receive the services, that you need these services. And then we'll also talk to you about um, what kind of reading materials you want. So some of the things that you can check off are, um, like, you know, you, you need our standard digital player, which plays the talking books. Um, you can say you want talking books on digital cartridges. Um, even if you want headphones for private listening, um, let us know if you need a high, people need a high volume player. We have some players that play at a higher volume for people who are harder of hearing. You can say you want Braille and audio reading downloads through BARD. There's lots of different um, materials that you can check off on. And then we'll also ask you in the form what your reading preferences are. Like say you want um, 
books for your child. We'll ask, you know, you can check off for elementary books. You can check off for preschool books. Um, say they're books for an adult. And then we have lots of different um, subject matters. So, you know, the usual, you can read the bestsellers in the New York Times list. You can read fantasy or folklore or read about war and Westerns. We have all of the typical genres that you would get in any public library. Um, we'll ask you about your interests and we'll also ask you um, how you heard about us. Pretty typical stuff you get in the application. So nothing difficult just to let you all know. So that's pretty much about us and our services and our application. I also wanna share with all of you a few highlights and changes that have happened. Um, and they've been in the works for a while. It definitely all happened before I started working here. I've been here, um, oh, I started in June. So I guess it's about three months. And again, I'm still learning. But one of the first things I learned when I started working here was the name LAMP. That name has been um, in the works for a while to be changed for formally from the Library for the Blind and Physically Handicapped. So several reasons why the name was changed was because, um, number one, it had been difficult for many people with print disabilities to recognize themselves as eligible for our services, not thinking of themselves as blind. When we are a very broad service for people with any kind of print disability. And similarly, the term physically handicapped um, is pretty outdated, number one, but also it's a broad description as well. So say people may have a physical disability or be physically handicapped, but just because a person may be, say, in a wheelchair doesn't mean they can't hold a book or that they can't um, write, really read like typical um, physical, broadly available um, books. Um, so it kind of depends, you know, on like how people define these words. But again, as being a public library service, we want to make sure that we are equitable in our service and that we are able to serve a broad range of people. And mainly the changing of the name was to broaden the perception of us so more people feel like they can actually access um, our services. And that's really what we're all about. So also too, as I was talking earlier about the book cartridges that we got for our reading machines, I know previously before I started, um, most of the cartridges had one or two books on them. We've now been able to buy cartridges with much more memory and you can get up to six or seven books on the cartridge. So that's really exciting. Say if you're into a long series, I know lots of people right now are reading the Dune series because the movie's getting ready to come out and say you want the Dune series and it's the original series is six books. We can put six books on a cartridge so you can just read to your heart's content. Also, again, the LAMP hotspots are new. We're very excited about that, again, to really make sure that people have access to reading um, that's comfortable for them and help people access the internet. Um, and we also have a new youth services librarian out in Pittsburgh. And so they'll be able to work closely with parents and teachers and librarians to provide, to provide access to age-appropriate materials for youth. Um, so that's pretty much what's going on with us. I hope that information was helpful. I hope you were all able to hear me. I apologize again for the 
um, the microphone issues. And I'm also here to, you know, answer any questions. And thank you so much, Christine. You're welcome. Uh, I have a question for you. Um, is the LAMP still offering um, the bookshare service to its uh, patrons? Yes. And um, also, are the playaways still available to those who want to use them? Ooh, you are very knowledgeable. Can you tell me more about the playaways? Because I don't think I know about those. Um, maybe that was something that only Pittsburgh had. A lot of libraries had them. They ran on like a couple of AA batteries, and they were loaded with a particular book. And I don't even know what books they were. They weren't books that were on NLS. But um, you would use your own headset and plug it in and uh, read a book. And it's kind of like something that is actually available in uh, local libraries all over the country. Um, and um, I just can remember seeing them there a couple of years ago and wondered if they were still um, if they were still being offered or if Philadelphia offered them as well. Um, yes, but thank you, Christine. I, personally, I've been trained on the equipment, and I was not trained on the playaway. And thinking about what how you're explaining them, I personally haven't seen them in our library. Um, but I will double-check with Kiri. I don't know if many of you know Kiri Wilkins, but she is our supervisor and director. But that one, that's a great question, and I'm happy to look into that and follow up with you. And question number next, um, if we were to want help from the library to spread the word about a particular event, um, could we, um, if we gave you copy, use not necessarily your mailing list, but possibly, um, not necessarily your email list ourselves or your mailing list, but ask you to uh, send at our expense a postcard to um, patrons telling them about a particular event or service and we could split it down like into counties like if there was something happening in Allegheny County uh, we would ask could you send this to all Allegheny County patrons or if there was something happening in Lehigh County could we ask that you send it to all Lehigh County patrons and um, send us the bill for the postage that is a great question um First, I'll say addressing the postage, because I know the answer for that. Um, everything that we mail to our patrons, um, people who are enrolled in our services, is free. And so um, everything's mailed free through the United States Postal Service. And how that works is people need to be, again, enrolled in our program, um, actually have a certifying authority, again, say that they are eligible for these services. And we can put free matter for the blind and physically handicapped in the corner, and things are mailed for free. So, but not if it's but but not if it's regular size print and uh, going. Yeah. Because I mean, and the problem is, if it's a postcard, we're not going to waste eighteen point print on a postcard. Oh, got it. I see what you're saying. Because yes, it has to be larger. You know right. so much about this, Christine. <laughs> yes. Yeah, so I just think about mail. That's what I've been trained on. Um, you something that's also a really good question about mailing out to patrons. So as a general rule, public libraries, we very much, it's part of our, um, actually, um, rights and respectful, um, treatment of patrons that we respect people's privacy. And so at the free library, I know that we 
almost never send mail out to patrons. So I can't speak for every library system, but us, we do not do that. Um, we very rarely even send an email um, only for book pickup or something like that, because uh, we want to make sure that people's even having a library card, we respect people's privacy. So I'm not sure if we could do a postcard mailing. Um, I know that this has come up quite a few times at our library, especially with the pandemic and trying to reach people. And every single time we're just like, no, we got to respect people's privacy. We don't want people being bombarded with mail. Um, but I will definitely look into that, Christine, because I'm not sure um, if maybe Pittsburgh has a different way of working with that. But I know the free library, we, we try to not send mail out to people. Have a couple hands up. Um, area code 724. You should be able to unmute. My name is October Lowe, and I have a roommate who has Parkinson's disease. And you mentioned about reading a large print, but she can also read regular print. Does Parkinson's affect vision, and would she still would she not qualify because of that, or what? You know, that's a great question. Thank you, October. Parkinson's can affect um, people in many different ways. Um, I actually have an uncle who has Parkinson's, and he is unable to hold a book um, because of his Parkinson's. Um, so he actually would qualify for the services. So qualifying for the services, um, I would say the general rule for people is that they have difficulty reading a typical book. So say if your roommate can't hold a book, even though she can read the smaller print, if she has a difficulty holding a book, even for a long period of time, she can definitely sign up for the services. I hope that's helpful. Yeah, I'll let my roommate know that. Yeah, and you mentioned yeah. about a DVD player. Is that the same thing as a CD player? Oh, so a DVD is different. So, yes, we have uh, movies on DVD, and they're for visual. Where CDs are audio, the DVDs would be digital for watching movies. And right now, unfortunately, oh. we do not loan out DVD players, but we do loan oh. out DVD. Um, I'm saying movies, but it's anything audio. People can get... Workout tapes, I mean, workout videos and movies and whatever is visual, you know, TV shows. We have DVDs for those. Next question. Mary Code 610, you should have be able to unmute. Thanks. Uh, Ed Facemeyer from Philadelphia. Uh, based on the books that uh, my wife and I receive, uh, apparently we have a there's a profile of interest that, uh, on file. If one wanted to update their profile, uh, how would they go about that? Thank you. That's a, also a great question. So if you wanted to update your profile and get different books, different genres of material to read, you would um, literally call us at that phone number. And so I'll give it to folks again. Um, call and um, you will be speaking with a reader's advisory person. That's our first line of phone calls because most people call us for um, issues that they can help directly with and tell them that you want to start receiving books in different genres um, and they will help you out with that and they can update your profile. So you can call the number 1-800-242-0586 and they'll be able to help you out with that. 
We do have three hands raised on the panelist side. Okay. Call them out, Doug. I think Londa is the first on the list. Um, I have a player that no longer works. Mm-hmm. I don't use it because I do everything off of my phone anyway. Can I return that and yet still stay in the program, still be able to get DVDs and, and that sort of thing, and just download my books like I've been doing and just return all the physical stuff? Yes, you can. You do not have to have a player to have an account. And so um, you can return to us. And actually, we have a program where um, whether they come to us or to Pittsburgh, Pittsburgh has a team that repairs the players. Um, so another person who may need one can use it. So feel free to mail it to us. And again, in any box, and it will mail to us for free. Um, all you have to do is make sure that you write down the free matter for the blind and physically handicapped. Sure. Yeah. The stamp would go. Yeah. And it'll come right to us and we'll make sure someone fixes it. And you don't need to have any of our physical stuff to have an account. Okay, so I can just call you and tell you when I send these cartridges back, don't send more because I don't use them. Yes, and actually, you should do similarly what the um, other person asked because we have a profile for when you fill out the um, the form, the application. We have a profile for people. So I would say call, exactly, call our phone number and tell the reader's advisory person for your account you no longer want those items. Okay. And they'll take it off to keep you from getting them in the future. Okay, and where can I find out, like, the DVDs? Where can I find out what's available so I can... Exactly, start watching the DVDs. Yeah, yeah they're so great. It's something on the exact same call. Okay, and yeah. they'll tell me where to find it. Okay. Uh-huh, cool. yep. So when you call um, and tell them about what you prefer to, you know, start using materials-wise, they'll go through all the same questions and they can help you find out what kind of movies or what kind of videos you want to watch. And they will help you with next steps with that. Oh, perfect. Thank yeah, you. No problem. And I'll go into the, I'll go back into the mute corner. And oh, Carla okay. Hayes is next. Carla text. Yes. Okay. Um, well, she asked one of my questions about the DVDs, but my other question is what can you play them on? Because I have a PC and the PC doesn't play a lot of, of um, DVDs. Like I've got a couple TV series and it won't play them. Do I actually need a physical DVD player? And my second uh, question was, could you please give um, what LAMP stands for one more time and also a website that we can um, look at for the local, you know, I mean, where you can find the local newsletter and what you have locally, because I have the barred one, but I don't have the regional one, if you know what I mean. Thank you. Yes. And thank you, Carla. Those are all great questions. So to your first um, question with the DVDs, you will need to buy a DVD player, unfortunately. Don't we don't loan those out. I hate telling people to spend money. <laughs> But um, they actually are pretty cheap now. I feel like DVDs players are maybe 25 30 bucks now. You can get them at any, I don't know, big box store, I guess, at, you know, Walmart, Target, a store like that. Um, I'm sorry that your computer's not playing them. Apparently something's wrong. Hopefully you can get that fixed. Um, and again, yeah, call us and talk to us and let us know what kind of DVDs you want. Um, and then LAMP stands for Library of Accessible Media for Pennsylvanians. 
Um, again, access is really important to us being a public library. So that's, we felt that was really important to update that. And also you taught me on um, a no-no. I so forgot to say our website. So you can learn everything about us and contact us through our website. It's my lamp. So my M Y lamp, L A M P dot org. And I hope that's, that's helpful, Carla. And I wanted to remind you, Carla, that um, DVD players that have been, um, that have been built since 2017 in December are supposed to be accessible. Right? I think so. Um, and probably it's just your, your player for your, um, for your DVD, for your computer is not picking up the, the, um, the DVDs properly. Okay, we have one more hand on the panelist side. Sue? Good morning. Um, thank you, Andrea. Um, you've done a fabulous job so far with your presentation. Oh, thank you. Um, <laughs> yeah. Uh, my question is, I know that the library in Pittsburgh has uh, at least one 3D printer. Mm-hmm. And I'm wondering what the purpose of that is. Is there anything that um, patrons could be have access to with that printer? You think that's a very good question, Sue. I don't know, and I I know that we also here have a not here at Lamp, but you know we are part of the Free Library. We have a few 3D printers that are available to everybody, but I'm not exactly sure how patrons can use them outside, especially with um, the buildings being not quite completely open during the pandemic. And I know that Pittsburgh, the main building, they're also um, closed right now for renovations. Um, you know what I can do? Because, Sue, I can actually contact the Pittsburgh team and ask them more questions about that. Oh, Christine, is there any way that I can maybe email um, you or a few other people that I'm on? I had their emails from... Um, signing up to be a panelist to answer some of these questions to follow up with people? Um, you can send an email to me. You've got my email, or you can send an email to the PCB office at uh, PCB office at PCB1.org. Okay, PCB1.org. Got it. Thank you, Christine. So I'm sorry I don't have the answer to that, Sue, but I can look into it, and I'm sure Dawn works out there, so I'll email Dawn. <laughs> I guess I have one question for you, Andrea, and and this isn't something probably that you that you as an outreach person would necessarily work with, but um, I know that the Bard main website allows you to do a lot of things, but the Bard mobile, because it's only designed to download digital books, doesn't let you do certain things um, with the big catalog searches and. Mm. Uh, you can't even use that section of the BARD website, um, that part of the BARD website to do um, searches on um, the BARD mobile. It just sits there and laughs at you. But um, when do they have they projected at all when they're going to allow BARD mobile to use the um, 
language filters so that we don't have to see all the foreign language books or see only one foreign language book type if we wanted to see all uh, Gujarat or uh, whatever? That is a great question. Um, I do know it's in the works. So I talked to my coworker. Some of you may know her, Pat Schatzberger. She is um, in charge of the cataloging and the materials. And I have been learning a lot about BARD. And I know for right now, they are working on better ways to search for BARD, through BARD. However, um, there is just this large, like, union catalog, what you were talking about, just um, on the NLS website. That is probably the best way to find what people are looking for, um, if you're familiar with that service and going online. So look through the union catalog. Um, and again, if you can't find particularly what you're looking for, um, give us a call. I know people love BARD and want to, you know, use it because it's so convenient on your phone. However, if there's something really particular you want to listen to as an audiobook, we can always, um, you know, download it and put it on a cartridge and mail it out with a machine as well. But yeah, that's in the works, but we have no idea the time that it will happen, um, mostly because I'm sure as many of you know, um, with the pandemic, there's just staffing is a huge issue. And I mean, everywhere. <laughs> Staffing's an issue from going to the convenience store in the corner to even in institutions. So unfortunately, a lot of things that were planned to come out in 2021, 2022, there's just a long lag. But it's in the works, Christine. And whenever we have you know, any inkling of when um, those features will be added to BARD for easier search. We will definitely let our patrons know. Well, in particular, it's BARD Mobile. I mean, yeah. I'm I'm just the BARD you Mobile. know, I'm I'm just enamored of using that. I never I don't read a book any any other way anymore from BARD. <laughs> I love BARD. So oh, so this actually is one point I want to bring up to people. Um, again, I have BARD uh, mostly to help with outreach. Um. But I'm a, just a regular library user. And with your regular local library, say even for audiobooks through like Libby or their typical catalog, you might still be on wait, put on hold, and you have to wait for a couple of months for one to be available. Um, what makes Bard so great is that there's no wait and there's no limit, which is unheard of in a typical library system, whether it's public or academic. Um, Bard is an instant download. So say, um, you know, you want to have a book club. Um, if you go through a regular local library for a book club and you need 10 copies of the book to put on hold, you're going to be waiting for a very long time. Um, Bard is instant. You and your book club fellow book club members can just all sit next to a Wi-Fi hotspot that you can borrow from us and all of you download the same audiobook. And you can have that for a book club. I mean, I agree with you, Christine. I'm also enamored with Bard. I think Bard, Bard is what I, I think many public libraries wish they were. I think a lot of public libraries wish they had the resources, the funding in order to be able to access books like that. Um, Bard is amazing. I can't tell, I can't talk about it enough. If I highly recommend that if people have access to the internet, really get a BART account. It's absolutely amazing. Chrissy, do you have a hand? Um, ending in 507? 
There you go. How long has the library been open? This is October. Oh, so this so this library in some form or fashion um actually outdates I know for us, I can't speak for Pittsburgh, but I know the Library for the Blind outdates the Free Library of Philadelphia. So the Library for the Blind here in Philadelphia has, I want to say it's been around since 1895. Wow. Yeah, it's really old. Actually, um, my supervisor, Kiri, she's talked Mm. about um, once people can kind of start coming in a little more um, as we start to open up more of having um, a display with all of the um, tech that we have. I mean, we have phonographs, we have records, we have, um, I'm, I'm going to age myself. I don't know if people remember the little floppy disk records that used to come on the back of cereal boxes um, or like in those little mm-hmm. Disney books, um, but those like flexible records, we have so much tech. We've been around for so long and it'd be great to actually show how technology has evolved and changed to create access to reading for everybody. So we've been around for a long time. Huh. Cynthia? Hi. Um, most of my questions were answered, except one. I do have a bot account, but I don't remember the, the account uh, username and password. How can I re- recapture that? Oh, for that one, you're going to have to call us. Call the number. Okay, great. Yeah, and it's and I would also suggest that when you call us, if you can have access to the internet Wi-Fi at the same time, because it's just one of those things where they have this timed password. So you okay. can call us and we will look into the system. But have you ever gotten one of those emails where it's like you have, I don't know, an hour to update your password? Yes, I understand what you mean, yes. Yeah, it's one of those things. So that's what we try to tell people when you call us, make sure you have access to the internet so you can update it right then if you can. Okay, great. Thank you so much. Oh, no problem. Thank you. Okay, um, ending in 066, you should be able to mute. Hello, uh, my name is Pat Freitas. Um, I liked your presentation. Did you also use cassette tapes as well as... Uh, digital uh, as well as records before you went to the digital yes we did we still have piles of cassette tapes and cassette players in our building um i admit i'm very much into much of a personal thing i'm very much into old tech and how it evolves and i love cassette tapes and i mean everything you could think of we pretty much have had at some point as especially when it comes to audio. So anything in audio um, we had at some point on a book is being read to make sure that people had access to those books. So, yeah, and I think that would, I still think that would be really great. Hopefully soon we could have a display um, where people could touch um, and feel and play old cassettes and records and hear audiobooks um, in that way. But yep, we used to have lots of cassette players. I have- Excuse me, this is Will Grignan. I have one question. Mm-hmm. I came in late, sorry. Um, is there any thought of allowing users of Bard Mobile to download directly from search results rather than adding it to the wish list and going through that rigmarole? Yeah, that is also, that's kind of piggybacks on the question that Christine answered. Um, that is in the works. Unfortunately, yeah. we're not sure when it will happen. But yeah, there's a lot of 
There's a lot of steps in order to find what you want and have it downloaded and go back and forth. Um, hopefully, I know even our um, talking book players, there's updates coming out for that as well. Um, so there's lots of updates in tech in the works. It's just that we don't know when those updates will happen, but we will definitely um, let patrons know. I, I do want to let folks know if the best way to keep track of um, exciting news and update with us is definitely to go to the website. Again, mylamp, M-Y-L-A-M-P dot org. And you can subscribe to our newsletter. You can see blogs with updating um, with tech and accessibility. And that's the best way to keep um, in touch with all of those things that are coming up. But yeah, right now we just don't have any dates knowing when things will be streamlined through BARD and also our union catalog. Is there anything else that you would like to um, make sure that we know that you realized partway through your talk that you'd missed and that you'd like to add? Um, thank you so much, Christine. I can't think of anything. I do want to give the number again because if all else fails, everyone, call us. So our number is 1-800-242-0700. And um, this was my first time speaking here. And I just want to thank everyone for being very gracious, um, for being super supportive. I apologize about the speaker issue. And thanks for being a great host, Christine. I appreciate it. Well, we thank you for coming. It's now time for Focusing on Diversity. And that's uh, Pam Shaw's uh, group of people. I can tell you that uh Pam has been um active in oh that's rude my I switched I switched screens and didn't it, I don't have her bio anymore but we all know that Pam's really um enthusiastic about everything and she's running for the board and she's um been active in um ACB and PCB in the past and um has a coaching uh company uh for people to be better, have better selves. So I'm turning it over to Pam. Thank you so much, Chris. It's great to be here. Good morning to everyone, to all of our family and all of our friends. And I am incredibly excited about this workshop. I'd also like to begin by thanking the conference planning uh, committee for their support and their hard work. It's been a pleasure to work with you and also the peer engagement team headed by um, Suzanne Erb for the assistance that they have provided as well. I just want to make an observation. We have uh, four panelists today, and three of them have won door prizes, and I have not. I don't know what that means, but I just wanted to make the point. The other thing that I've been asked to do today is to wish everyone a happy Hispanic Her Heritage Month. It goes from um, September 15th to October 15th, and we want to certainly celebrate the culture, the people, and the voices that bring so much to our community. I'd also like to mention that there are goals for today's workshop. It's our hope that by being here today, you will come to understand what is meant by diversity, equity, and inclusion. Also, that you'll get to learn from the panel of experts, and third, 
that you'll be able to see ways that the principles that you learn can be called upon and you can use them in your personal and professional lives. Just a few words about our topic for today. Diversity is often perceived as Did I get muted for a minute? You're still here. Okay. It's going crazy okay. for some reason. <laughs> That's okay. Don't worry about it. I'll just start right here. Diversity is often perceived as to be a discussion about perspective, how we think about things, how we view things. And a word that you'll hear a lot when you hear about diversity is the word representation. One thing about this topic, though, is that from time to time, it does involve some tough conversations, but they're good conversations because they contribute to the welfare of everyone. The second term that we often talk about is inclusion, and inclusion often causes us, causes us to think about creating an environment where everyone is involved, where everyone has a chance to experience all that we have to offer. And it reminds us about um, supporting one another, and it also supports diversity as well. But the other one is called equity. And we can define equity as fairness, sameness, and valuing diversity and inclusion. I found that on my own personal journey, I've often been called upon to deal with this particular issue in various environments. And although I primarily used my life experiences, I soon realized that it was time for me to get some formal education so that I could be of better help helping people to have the difficult conversations, helping people to sort this out professionally and personally, helping people to connect with one another and also how to apply, apply this in your life. I can tell you that for me though, it's has been, it's been an opportunity and I've increased in pride and I've also increased in professional and personal development. You might ask the question, why this topic and why here? Our theme this year is strengthening communities through unity. And we cannot have a strong community unless we focus on diversity. Also, we can't experience true unity until we are comfortable with one another despite our various differences. And so this kind of discussion is designed to promote respect, acceptance, teamwork, and innovation despite our various differences. When our minds collaborate, we achieve a common goal, and frankly, everyone wins. One of my mentors in training talks about it this way, and he likens it to a dance. He said that diversity is when everyone is invited to the party. Inclusion means that everyone gets to contribute to the playlist. And equity means that everyone has the opportunity to dance. So having said that, welcome to the party. Now we have assembled, I call them, a panel of experts this afternoon, this morning, to share their experiences with you. And to get the ball rolling, I'm just going to ask each one of them to briefly introduce themselves, 
your name, where you currently, where you live and what you do for a living, if you want to share that and any experience that you have had that you think is relevant to the discussion. So we're going to begin with John Luttenberger. John? Good morning, everybody. My name is John Luttenberger. I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I'm retired. And um, as far as blindness-related activities uh, in my life right now, I'm on the PCB parliamentary team. I'm the corresponding secretary of the Philadelphia Regional Chapter. I'm on the board of directors of the Overbrook School for the Blind Alumni Association and co-chair of their social committee. And I'm vice president of the Jenny Beck Chapter of the Braille Revival League, which is based here in Philadelphia. So it's great to be here. And that's it for now. Thank you so much, John. Our next panelist is Betty Pasanante Rodriguez. Hello, my name is Betty Pasanante Rodriguez. He'll be speaking in a few minutes. Uh, I um, I live in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania also. I'm totally blind. Uh, as far as blindness activities, when things are open and functioning, I'm a member of the Neville Ayers Course for the Blind at Overbrook School, that meets at Overbrook School for the Blind. Many of us attended the school, but we all uh, are not necessarily alumni. Uh, we're not necessarily alumni. Uh, we're hoping to get started again in January. I also am active in two chapters, actually, of the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind, and I'm also I try to be active in the Braille Revival League uh, Jenny Beck Jenny Beck chapter, as does John. And as far as my employment, I was until recently a Spanish interpreter for the health department. Uh, I worked on Gerard Avenue at a, at a city medical clinic and helped Hispanics and the other professionals communicate with each other. And by the way, feliz mes de, de uh, raíces hispanos. Happy month for those of Spanish roots to everybody. And uh, uh, diversity is something that I, I've kind of worked with over the years. I've, I've, I've worked with Puerto Ricans and Latin Americans and people from all different Latin American countries and the cultures are a little bit different. Everybody is, isn't the same just because they speak the same language. So that's it for Thank now. You, Thank you, Betty. Thank you. Thank you. Our next panelist, you might recognize the last name. It's Bob Rodriguez. Bob? Bob Rodriguez. I live in uh, Philadelphia. I'm partially sighted and I'm active in the uh, Neville Ayers Choir. I'm treasurer there. And also blind ham radio clubs and uh, things like that. Thank you. And I'm a computer programmer. Ah, thanks, Bob. Our next panelist, her name is Cache Wells. Cache. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. This is Cache Wells, and I am in Jacksonville, Florida. Good to be here this morning. I am currently a part of the Jacksonville Council of the Blind, where I am the first vice president. I am also a member of the Florida Council's Employment and Membership Committee. I uh, am currently also a standing um, contributor for the White Cane Bulletin, and I am the newly elected member of the BOP. Thank you so much. I am excited to be here. Thank you, and we commend you and congratulate you on your election to the uh, American Council of the Blind Board of Publications. 
Now, there are a few questions that we're going to ask of the panel so that we can stimulate some discussion. And then once we've gone through that, we're going to open it up for a time of question and answer for and discussion for everyone who's here. And the two of the panel, I'm going to go pretty much in alphabetical order, but with a bit of a rotation. So I will call upon you by name. The first, and they have not, they've been told that there are no right or wrong answers. Simply speak from your heart for about two, maybe to three minutes when the question is asked. So here's our first question. What, in your own words, does diversity mean to you? Again, in your own words, what does diversity mean to you? And so we will start with John Luttenberger. John? Uh, thank you, Pam. Well, to me, the word diversity, uh, actually, you summarized it pretty well in your introduction, but diversity uh, indicates that, uh, indicates a wide range, like the widest possible range of individuals coming from all different kinds of uh, ethnic backgrounds, uh, LGBTQ, um, and many others, uh, which don't are coming to mind at the moment, but um, the widest possible range of individuals of uh, representing um, uh, a wide variety of uh, perspectives and and uh, and life lifestyles. So um, uh, that's what, and and I also uh, believe that uh, I think there are maybe some people who 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 may think that diversity means. Um, perhaps excluding, uh, you know, one group in favor of another, but that's not the case. It's all groups uh, working together, working together for a common end. Uh, and in the case of uh, PCB, of uh, furthering our goals as far as uh, improving the lives of uh, peers with uh, uh, experiencing vision loss. Thank you, John, for that insight. Our next person that we're going to ask the same question of is Betty Passanante Rodriguez. Betty? Good morning. Betty Passanante here. Well, the, I guess the most obvious meaning, meaning for me of diversity is difference. Mm. Uh, difference and these diversities can be many. Language, culture, race, religion, perspective, and even opinions about things. It doesn't have to be the overt obvious meanings of diversity. It's any kind of difference. And uh, I think, believe it or not, as disabled people, we are fortunate in one way, and that is we already have a built-in sense of diversity because we already belong to a minority without mm-hmm. us uh, be asking to be or getting involved with one. So, And our disabilities do not respect race, color, culture, language, or any old thing. So from the from birth almost, we are forced to open ourselves to all kinds of people because we're going to be living with them and working with them and learning with them and experiencing with them. Now, I wish that could say it eliminates prejudice. It doesn't. But still, I think it makes us a lot more open to things that are different and things that are outside the box because from the beginning, we're doing things differently, whether it's Braille, whether it's mobility, whether Mm -hmm. it's feeling around more. And right from the beginning, we're, we're dealing with, with the differences among ourselves and, and we're going to be working with other people. It doesn't matter where you live if you're disabled. Sometimes you can avoid people depending on where you live. That doesn't work with us. We're going to be exposed to 
all manner of people, and we can learn from them, and we can, and if we open our minds and our hearts, we can find it very enriching. That's all I have to say for now. Thank you, Betty. Thank you so much. What an interesting perspective. Well, Bob, we'd like to hear from you, your thoughts on what does the word diversity mean in your own words. All righty. Yeah, I would say uh, celebrating differences that we have, uh, especially, you know, religion, culture, political uh, affiliation, maybe uh, different disabilities, too. That's uh, that's one big one. And uh, learning to understand each other and how we can uh, cooperate and work together. Hmm. Thanks. Cache, we'd like to hear your thoughts in your own words about what diversity means to you. Thank you so much. Um, diversity to me um, is, uh, it encompasses uh, the flexibility to understand that no matter how versatile we are, whether it's through similarities or even differences, that the internal makeup, our external makeup, whatever our organizational connection or even whatever our perspectives or our views is on life, that we all are different, but even in our differences, we still have similarities and it's um, respecting those, respecting those regardless to the things that are made up, um, the things that we make up rather, um, mm-hmm. and just is bringing those together for a common goal. So regardless to whatever uh, our differences are, that's diversity. Like you said in your introduction, I love that. It's inviting everybody to the party. It's being open enough and willing enough to receive um the same uh, level of respect that you want to be able to give uh, that what you give is what you want to receive and inviting everybody to the party is the first step to diversity thank you thank you i like parties okay our next question will be, we will be starting with betty Pasinante. and here is this question can you give an example of how your beliefs uh, related to diversity show up in your life? Betty? Yes, hi. Well, uh, I try to believe that we're all equal. We're all created equally by God. And I try to, I believe that firmly. Unfortunately, things can enter, whether it's cultural differences, even something as simple as a louder taste in music among some people, or, uh, just just things that can kind of get in the way but but i I try to work through them and find out what's underneath all of that and live with and and try to live with people as they are and mm. uh, it's not a perfect thing it's not always as easy as I wish it were but we i we try to live that way and and use the experiences we have and uh learn from them and learn from the learn from the bad and try to gain the good and and improve ourselves that way. Uh, I am an uh, Irish Italian, actually, uh, and I married an incredibly handsome Mexican Irish German guy. <laughs> and, uh, we try to understand each other in various ways. We're also different religions, and we have a cute Irish song that we like to sing. It's about we'll get married different verses when, uh, when a Protestant becomes a pope or when the. Thank you, Betty. Thank you. know, you. and all that. So we tried, uh, I, I tried to, um, to realize that everybody is not going to be the same, and I try to deal with what I ha- what I get when it happens, and learn from it the best I can. Thank you so much, Bob. Um, I know that your spouse started a little bit of the answer, but I'd like to hear also from you. How do you find diversity showing up in your life? 
Yeah, my mom was a Pan Am stewardess, and she uh, traveled around the world uh, with uh, speaking different languages, and and that. So from an early age, I got into interested in different cultures, and uh, I like to try out all different kinds of food and uh, music. And so uh, I've always been trying to understand people from different backgrounds, and uh, it's good. That I think when we got together, uh, even with a different religion, it wasn't a big deal. But every now and then you run into people that uh, misunderstand you. Like, uh, you know, from when I was a kid, I ran into some trouble because I was Mexican. But uh, we tried to work around that. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Cache, how's it showing up in your life? Um, For me, I try to just stay true to who I am. Um, uh, it's um unique to uh, be able to be not just a woman in this society, but be a black woman. Um, but what I find is that making connections and being true to the person that you are is the best way to um, allow diversity to show up in your life. Because, again, it's about everybody being invited into the same spaces to be able to have the conversations and dialogue. And so when you make uh, connections and you're true to who you are, um, it gives it gives way to opening the door so that you don't feel like you have to be someone else. You don't get pulled into different mm-hmm. stereotypes. You're secure in who you are. Um, and just, again, uh, walking in the truth of who you are, being unique, being uh, the creative person that you are, and being understanding to know that it's not about um, agreeing. It's just about understanding who people really are. Thank you so much. Thank you for that. And John? Your thoughts on the question, um, what does it, how does it show up in your life? Uh, well, I started out, uh, uh, in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, a German American and, uh, uh, very homogeneous there. But, um, I've been very fortunate from early on to, um, be presented with, um, different environments that, that had a wide variety of people and, um, starting at Overbrook School for the Blind and, when I went from uh, kindergarten through high school and, um, there were, uh, you know, I made some of my lifelong friends come from that era and some are, um, are, uh, Caucasian. Others are not, uh, but, uh, but they're all, uh, a joy to me. And, and I've had, I started out with that experience. Then, um, later, later on, um, when I moved to Philadelphia, when my job changed in the uh, late eighties, I uh, came to Philadelphia and, um, I got involved with a, a wonderful Lutheran church in, uh, the Mount Airy section of Philadelphia, Northwest Philadelphia, which unfortunately is now closed, but I was there for 29 years and it was very, uh, racially mixed, uh, economically mixed, uh, all mixed in every way. In fact, we nicknamed ourselves God's attic. Um, uh, which I enjoyed, but, but, uh, the, everyone there was wonderful. There were no clicks there and people were just so friendly. And, um, I got, I got introduced to, um, gospel music there from some of the hymns we sang for the African-American members. And we also sang, you know, other styles. Um, also I perform with a large chorus in Philadelphia and we've done, uh, piece, we, we've done pieces by, um, composers of many different um, different backgrounds and ethnicities, from uh, Asian Asian background to African American composers and performers. Uh, Sweet Honey in the Rock comes to mind uh, mm-hmm. with Isaiah Barnwell. That was a f- wonderful time. 
but it's just been, um, I've really um, been open to all these experiences, and it's been uh, a joy to um, be part of that. Hey, thank you so much to all of our panelists. Thank you for what you were sharing. Um, this next question, and we'll be starting with Bob, is, is one that um, I get a lot as I travel around and talk to people about um, diversity, equity, and inclusion. And I am often asked if an organization of blind and visually impaired people should be concerned about issues of racism. Your thoughts. And so we're going to start with Bob. Um, thank you. I do believe that um, um, as a blind and vision impaired person, we should be concerned because um, it's not like we can omit the um, consequences or the results that come from that because we are innately uh, sometimes directly affected. So why not be a part of the solutions for change um, instead of just um, acting as if it's their problem or someone else's problem? Um and racism can come in different forms. And I think that um, the more that we uh, get involved, we are uh, made aware of all of the things, all the aspects of it. Um, so, again, mm-hmm. if if someone in my family is affected, I'm still affected. If someone in my neighborhood is affected, I'm still affected. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the old saying is that if it happens on your street, it's definitely going to happen to your door. So, yes, I do believe that. Uh, no matter who you are, blind, visual impaired, uh, whatever your disability or inability is, it's everybody's right and responsibility to be a part of the solutions. Thank you. Got you. John, your thoughts, please. Well, I'll start by saying that um, as as a white person, this is something that, um, you know, I really haven't personally experienced happening to me, but obviously I hear about it from uh my friends who have had um racial issues and situations uh unfortunately in the polarized world in the polarized political scene right now that we have in this country this i think this is a hot button word and it makes it very hard sometimes to um to really try to get to the nitty gritty of this and not um you know have people go off into various uh political directions but the key i think is to to listen very carefully and 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 sympathetically to what people report about things that are going on and and uh to discuss uh you know different approaches that's the other thing there are there are many many opinions from different directions about what to do about certain aspects of it uh, one being uh, uh police department uh, actions and so forth, uh, wildly varying opinions about what to do about that and many other things. So I think the key is just calming down and, and listening to each other and, and then eventually after a lot of hard work, uh, figuring it out to some degree. Thanks. Thank you. Thanks. And Betty, your thoughts. Should we be, as an organization of blind and visually impaired people, be concerned about issues of racism? Well, absolutely, because blindness is only one aspect of our lives. We live in the world as it is, and our blindness uh, fits into that picture. And and uh, we must be concerned about all issues, our blindness-related, world peace, economy, inclu- independence, inclusion, 
freedom and the court and racism. It's there. It's all pervasive. It can be very subtle. Many of us who are somewhat educated and somewhat enlightened would like to think that we've avoided it, but there can be a lot of in, of uh, traces of it that we don't even realize among ourselves and among each other. And yet we need to be concerned. We need some of our chapters even are segregated, not intentionally, but it kind of depends on where people live. And when we can, say regionally and at a conference like this, we need to be welcoming and inclusive so that everybody feels that this is not a clique and that everybody is welcome and their voices are heard and their opinions are heard. And it's all pervasive. It's been around forever. And we need to constantly Mm -hmm. talk to each other, listen to each other, and find ways to include each other. And I don't mean just tokenism. I mean really finding those among whatever race we are that are qualified and include them in leadership roles and make them welcome when they come to meetings. Make And I say them. I shouldn't even be saying them. We need to all think alike, work together, talk together, listen together, and not, and I, I'm using, already, I'm using a word them, which I shouldn't use, but mm-hmm. it's subtle, it's very subtle. We all need to work together and find out how to live together and be together and really dig, dig, dig to find the common ground and only enjoy the fun differences like food flavors and that kind of thing <laughs> and make sure we stick to the, the things that really, really matter to us. Thank you. Thank you so much for that, Betty. Thank you. Uh, to the panelists, I just want you to know that I'm skipping questions uh, in the service of time because we want to have a good amount of time to bring everybody in, uh, who the people who are part of the audience to be with us. So I didn't forget a question. I'm just skipping around. Um, here's one that sort of I think is directly related to the one we just had. And we'll be starting with Cachet. And it says here, please share any suggestions that you have that would promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in the Pennsylvania Council of the Blind, but I'm also using that as ACB or anywhere in our community. Cassay? Thank you so much. Um, Definitely. Uh, One suggestion is to just focus on um, the person, focus on building, focus on um, expanding um, your perspective, recognizing that, um, again, there are more things that are similar or in common that we have, but you never know that unless you have a conversation. And I think mm-hmm. the more that we have conversations, the more that we dialogue, and the more that we just get to know people and be inviting, I think that's the number one thing for me. Um, it's nothing like going into a new environment and not feeling like you are invited. Like you've been invited, but you don't feel the presence of the invitation. Um, that says a lot because it still says that there's work to be done. And, mm-hmm. and if we want to be able to, uh, tackle the work that needs to be done, everyone should feel like they are part of the process. Thank you so much. Thank you. All right, John, how about you? Suggestions, thoughts on what we can do to promote diversity, equity, and inclusion in our community? Well, I'd like to, uh, first of all, thank Cachet for her comment because it somewhat parallels um, what I think. But um, I think it's um, very key that we, uh, when we when we start to deal with an issue, especially like uh, racism, but other things, when we deal with these issues, we we need to look at each individual. Uh, and I mean, they're a part of a group, but but in the end, each individual is unique and special and uh, 
has things to share and offer, and we need to uh, really uh, look at them as an individual person and deal with with that deal deal with that aspect of the situation. So, um, and I think that's just something. I think we've been starting to do that, but we just need to do it more and a lot more of it. So, um, thank you. Thank you. Okay, and Betty, your thoughts. What can we do? <laughs> well, um, first of all, a little bit about my background. I was very fortunate. The church I grew up in started out back in the 40s. I'm, a, I'm almost 80. So my church back in the 40s started out as a very Irish Italian, very white church with very, what are thought of now as old-fashioned style hymns. And over time, it evolved. And uh, I wouldn't have been singing gospel hymns uh, when I was about 10 years old, the way I do now. Now, my brother was different. He listened to more radio, and when, when the change came, he was ready for it. It took me a little getting used to. But so we have to, as things evolve, we have to be open to what's happening and willing to, uh, instead of worrying quite so much about are we invited, kind of, if you're there, try to find out how to participate and invite yourself and make yourself a part of the picture as best you can. Ask questions, try to do what's happening if you, if you can do it, and that kind of thing. And the other thing is for all of us, when we do invite, and I love the analogy about whether you just get invited, do the play list, or get to actually dance. When we invite people, whoever they are, whoever we are, we must really try to make everyone feel welcome and participatory. Everybody counts, whether you can dance or not, whether you can sing or not, whether your opinions are a little fuzzy or not, and they're not, they don't quite with the mainstream. Everybody has a voice. Everybody needs to be counted. Ray Stevens said everything is beautiful in its own way, and we have to keep that in mind that, that we are all God's children. And I know this sounds a little corny, but we're all God's children. We're all beautiful, and we all need to listen, to find out what we have among ourselves and among each other so that nobody's talent gets unused because everyone has a talent. Everyone has something to bring to the party, to the table, and we need to make create atmospheres where that is really, really encouraged. Thank you. And Bob, your thoughts. What can we do? Okay, I like what Betty said, but I might, might like to add to it that uh, we try to stay away from political battles and you know, try to understand each other that, that way as far as uh, each other's perspective. So, and uh, maybe also uh, differences between like partially sighted and totally blind, try to better understand what we could help each other in that way. Got you. Thank you. Thank you. Um, as we prepare to transition to our open forum where we'll be having input from everyone, one of the things that I asked each panelist to do was to come up with a quote, select a quote that kind of encourages them in this area, that, that encourages them when they think about diversity, equity, and inclusion. So we'll just start with John, your quote, please. Um, my quote not only relates to the topics we're talking about today, but to every aspect of what PCB does, because uh, we'll all, when you hear the quote, you'll know why. It, 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 it applies to everything that we do, especially when we fight for legislation and we battle transportation agencies and, and all these things. And it just sometimes seems hopeless, but we just keep at it. So my quote is a quote from President Obama. And it is, if you're walking down the right path and you're willing to keep walking, eventually you'll make progress. Thank you. Thank you. 
Okay, Betty, your quote. Yes, um, I happen to have a, a same the same kind of. I happen to have a quote from President Obama also. Once I heard okay. him say that mm-hmm. he was talking about economic problems and creating jobs and all that, and he said, "You know, these problems are solvable." And it made me think. Now I don't know how to create jobs and help the economic situation, but if big problems are solvable, certainly smaller problems are solvable. And there's nothing that we can't really solve if we all work at it. So the idea that uh, that problems are, if you look at them and think about them a little bit, many are more solvable than we think. And it doesn't take a whole lot to, to uh, just take some time and some attention. And also, I do like the song that Ray Stevens sang. Everything is beautiful in its own way, like a starry night or a snow-covered winter's day. There's real contrast there. But Thank they're both you beautiful. For that, Betty. And we all Thank need to recognize so what is in ourselves and each other and, 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 and relish in that contrast. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. And Bob, your quote. Okay. I found one from uh, Ted Kennedy. Uh, what divides us pales in comparison to what unites us. I th- think that's a good one for trying to bring us together mm. on uh, issues of diversity. I like that. Okay, Cache, and your quote? <laughs> Thank you so much. Uh, well, you, you guys have had some great quotes, but I'll stick with one that I use in a campaign. It's something that I use personally that just is a constant reminder to me that um, by Helen Keller that alone we can do so little, but together we can do so much. And sometimes the things that seem so great, which is one person, but one person can make a difference. And so I just try to keep that in the forefront of my thoughts. And again, alone, we could do so little, but together we can do so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. And as we transition, I'll share mine. It simply says this, darkness cannot drive out darkness. Only light can do that. Hate cannot drive out hate. Only love can do that. And it comes from Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. Thank you so much, panelists. You have been marvelous. Great discussion, great insight. Um, and all of you who were nervous about this, you did just fine. And now to our host, we want to open up for some dialogue with our audience, those who have questions, comments, or anything else that they'd like to share. So if you would recognize people as appropriate. Thank you. Okay. Um, Joseph, you can talk. You can unmute. I hope you can get to a, a, a sense of how I'm going to, I'm turning my speech off so it, I don't get distracted. But I hope as, as things continue on that we have, we can develop measuring sticks or, or barometers of how, how, what, how are we progressing? Where do we need to go? I've always felt that I, as a white person, will never try to define what a a person's experience of another group is. Mm. It's my obligation to understand it and to give you space to, to express it. Yet, I think what, what I'm afraid of that as we're in a climate of political correctness that we need to find those those times that we can let our hair down and express what's really what's really 
you know, bothering us. Mm-hmm. And if we make a mistake, we, we make a mistake and it can be responded to. Because I don't think we'll make progress unless, as a white person, I understand how all these inequities have hurt me and that I'm better off if they're corrected because they're going to be of benefit to me in the long run. And I, I, I feel that that's, that's the problem I, 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 I found among white people that I, I know. And even in leading the discussion that I had about the book on television and, and, and so forth, that until we, you know, I just didn't do as good a job as I should have, and I'm 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 sorry, but that's where how it's all hitting me at the moment. So, mm-hmm. well, thank you, Joe. Thanks for that comment. Thank you so much. We need safe places where we can discuss yeah, these kinds of things without having fear of judgment. Um, some of my friends who. Uh, of various ethnicities say to me, Pam, you know, sometimes I want to say something, but I'm afraid if I say it, people will think I'm a racist. Mm-hmm. And okay, okay, but it still needs to be said. So thank you, Joe, for that. Do we have any other hands raised? Andrea? Yes, thank you. Sorry about that. Um, this has been a really beautiful discussion. And you know, LAMP um, here in Philly, we're a part of the Free Library, and we've been having a lot of discussions on equity and inclusion to make sure we are providing the best services to everyone we can in our communities. And I was wondering, how can institutions really support the work that you're doing? Like, say, how could I, with LAMP here, really support the work that's being done for equity and inclusion in um, organizations like yours? Thank you. Um, Panelists? You're the expert. Somebody want to take that one? <laughs> I will, hi, this is Cache. Um, I will mm-hmm. say in an organization, um, no matter how small or how big, that there always needs to be a fundamental group of diverse, uh, a core group of people that are bringing forth um, not just ideas of what what needs to change, of just um, but brainstorming on, on what's work, what what is and what's not working. So if if you start at the table with a group of diverse personalities, um, you can get a diverse group of perspectives. Thank you so much. Thanks. Any other panelists want to weigh in? Uh, Betty Passanati here from yes. Philadelphia. Yes, we. Uh, and I'm glad the library is thinking about this. I I, I have to say, Andrea's a mic's been a little muffled. I didn't get her comments as clearly as I'd like to, but uh, we we all agree that whatever. Uh, nothing is going to work if the group is not really diverse and allowing all kinds of people to uh, to speak up and be heard. I notice, even say regarding technology, we, we have a, we have a diversity among us. Some of us are great geeks, and some of us, like me, think that um, soft. Oops! What happened? Oh, am I, I'm, there am you I are. Back? now. You're back. Am I back? Yes. I was just saying we have a, we have diversity among us uh, among technology people. Some of us are, I married an incredible geek, thank goodness. As for me, I think a megabyte is how most of the men in my life like to eat their hoagies and software is when your ice cream cone melts. So, <laughs> Thank you, Betty. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. One of the things I think that's very important that we're seeing here today is the importance of keeping the lines of communication open and so that they are 
so that we can be clear. Uh, with the library, for example, one of the things we've talked about down through the years has been the selection of books that were even recorded so that even in the collection, diversity was there. And some of the other kind of issues that a number of people are working on, for example, um, looking at more narrators who were people from various backgrounds so that the accents sound more authentic. And we had a, a an event this past summer um, at our ACB convention that talked about even how to do description uh, when it comes to some of these kinds of issues. But I think, as was said, it's going to start with being able to communicate with each other. Do we have any more hands? Serena, you should be able to unmute. Good morning, everyone. Good morning, friends. Good morning, peers. And I love the word peers. Um, beautiful session, panelists. I'm all happy to know you're all my friends for many years. One of the things I, 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 that's my observation, my comment would be, with all of this being shared this morning, PCB might benefit, this is the only suggestion, by having, if they don't have it, a statement on their website about what we're talking about, mm. equity, inclusion, and the, and the like. Because when anyone comes to our website, that's a statement of who we are as peers in our community. And that sets the tone for who we expect everyone to be as they participate throughout the state and are representatives of our great state and our community. That's all. Hmm. I like that. Thank you. You made me think about that because on so many websites now, there are statements of accessibility. You know, so why would there not be one that speaks to diversity, equity, and inclusion? As always, thank you so much, Sarita, for that insight. I love that. I don't have any yeah. more hands, but I can I make a comment? You mind? Please. <laughs> There's an element that I think gets kind of ignored in this whole diversity thing, and that is, and I, I'm, I'm trying to figure out a way to really be kind about this, and I'll kind of explain my example, and that is mm-hmm. mental capability. Yeah. Um, I was in a chapter, I was president of a chapter that had a gentleman who was developmentally delayed. And he, um, every time he would open his mouth, there was kind of a collective in the room. And when I became president, I said, we're not doing this anymore. Mm. This gentleman, once you allowed him to back up, to calm himself from being upset because he wasn't getting called on and talk. He had so much to say that was of such value to our chapter. And I would just like to see this whole, you know, that be part of diversity also. There are people who've mm-hmm. had, you know, have had strokes or, you know, maybe just the, the sound of their voice kind of rubs some of us the wrong way or, and I just feel like that's really important. And I really appreciated John's. Um, statement about, you know, economic differences, you know, just because we're, quote, uh, in a lower income bracket or whatever, unquote, that doesn't make us any less than the person who makes billions of dollars a year. Right. I'm glad you said that because the word that's coming to my mind is acceptance. Yeah. That, that there has to mm-hmm. be kind of that open of accepting people for who they are, as opposed to wanting to put them into our various boxes without regard for who they really are. And for me, acceptance starts at a very basic level, which is that the person 
is a human being. And deep down inside, they are really no different than me. Not really. So why would they not want what I want? Anybody else want to weigh in on that comment? I heard a story of a from a chapter. A gentleman was developed, severely developed and really delayed. And lo and behold, they found out he had an incredible gift for memorizing and uh-huh. remembering dates and happenings and events. And it turned Ooh. out they wound up using it as almost a human calendar. They called mm-hmm. him whenever they needed to know specifics, even though maybe his other conversations were a little more narrowly focused. So really, it's a question of finding out not every mentally ill person is going to have that kind of gift. But every well, we need to find out what gifts people have and how they can be used. And if we look hard enough, Something can be utilized in some way if we really look hard enough. Pam. I like that. Anybody? Yes, go ahead, please. This is Doug Hunsinger. I just wanted to save Linda the trouble of lowering my hand or something. Um, One of the things I'd like to say is that discussions like this are good. I remember when the fathers uh, did their presentation last year, Tom Reed and Bob and, um, oh, gosh, the other two escaped my memory right now. But many of the African, uh, the African American males describe things that I never experienced, fears that I'd never experienced. And so not only, you know, did I support, but now I understand. And, and to me, that's, that's really the key. Uh, It's not that you just support, but you really understand what somebody's going through. Mm I'm, well, I'm this glad is, you mentioned that. This ahead, is Chris, please. and I just have one quick Go thing. Ahead, and, and that is, that really does bring up the concept for us to think of a new kind of a task force or a team within PCB um, that will help f- foster this kind of understanding. Mm-hmm. Maybe we can do workshops. I mean, there's just a lot of stuff we could do. That's and right. and it doesn't sound, I'm, I feel like it sounds almost like a Band-Aid, but it maybe doesn't. Um, maybe we just need to be proactive and and um, all of us think we're covering it in some way or another. But as, as Doug said, when he heard those fears, I mean, that just, I remember that last year. That just brought, you know, what, or was that two years back? It's hard to remember now. It must have been two. Um, mm-hmm. that just brought chills, chills to my soul thinking that I don't have to worry about that kind of stuff. Mm. You know, it's like, that's interesting. That's great. One of the things that often touches me is that, um, we've all got work to do. Because sometimes I've noticed in this area, one group is pointing at another saying, well, it's your fault, you know, or tell me what we should do. And another group is saying, I'm not doing anything till somebody else tells me what I should do. And we're waiting back and forth. We all have a role to play. We all have the work. It, it's, it's the responsibility of all of us. And one of the things I like to say is, in, and it has to start with us as individuals. Because after all, that's who we are. You know, when we come together, that's when it works out. Any of our other panelists want to weigh in? And by the way, anybody else can too. Thank you so much. Um, I love what someone said is, um, earlier is that, again, our experiences may not be the same, but our understanding um, mm-hmm. to have empathy that it may not be happening to me, but it's happening to someone. And I think the more mm-hmm. that we um, allow ourselves to be empathetic to know that, um, yeah, it's not happening to us, but I can still understand because I feel, you know, every time there's an issue or situation, no matter mm-hmm. um 
no matter what race or what the person is, I still am empathetic to it because mm-hmm. I have a son. I have a daughter. I'm a woman. I'm a woman of color. So I'm empathetic to that could be me. Um, so what can I do? And I think if we all do the self work, you know, again, it's, it's, it takes self evaluation and self work to say, you know what I mean? I can be a part of this, um, not the problem, but a part of the solution. So what can I do? How can I be, make a difference? How can I bring change? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Suzanne, has your hand up? Oh, thank you. Um, hey, Pam. Suzanne. <laughs> Hi. <laughs> what a wonderful. Panelists, everybody, what a wonderful presentation. And, you know, I I think that we have to have so many dialogues um, and and that the dialogue never should stop. Uh, And it shouldn't be, uh, okay, today, you know, this is National Diversity Week. uh, So we're going to talk about diversity this time and we're going to talk about something else next time. Um, no, this is, this is something that, that is an all the time, 24 seven kind of thing that we need to always be thinking of. And it has to do not just diversity of race, creed, religion, um, disability, I think is a real big one. And, and even among our blind peers, we really do need to be cognizant of people who have many, many different disabilities. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I agree with you. Thank you. Anybody else want to react to Susan's comment? One of the things I often uh, think about, and some of you have heard me say this, is that what helps me is to have people of various backgrounds, whatever that is based upon, in my inner circle, in my circle of friends. Some of you are on the phone right now. And what that does for me is I know that between the two of us, we can have the type of conversation that's helpful and that's healthy. We may see something on television that startles us and says, call each other and say, is that really true? Or is that how somebody acts? And some of you have heard me do that dinner party thing. If you have a dinner party and you're going to invite your 10 closest friends, do they all look like you? Do they all sound like you? Do they all behave like you? Because when we can have the deep conversations, when my friends can call me up and say, I was in a workshop today and this is what I wanted to say, but I was scared, and they can tell me what it was, then we can talk about it and I can encourage them to go back and be able to say it. Because sometimes um, language can get in the way. And we can say something and we don't mean it that way, but I think that's part of understanding who we are, being patient with one another, um, asking a question. Uh, I'm like, Doug, you know, I, I hear people talk about things and I never thought about it before. I didn't understand why, for example, some of my friends are Jewish and they are very, very clear about Zionism and their feelings about Israel. But when they tell me the stories of their families, of what happened in the Holocaust, or I went to the museum for myself, it was a deepening of my understanding and my respect for them. And even if we differ, it's just based on that, not a lack of understanding or caring or concern. And there's one other thing I will share with you. There's a song that came out a number of years ago. Guy's name is Jeffrey Osborne. And the song says, if my brother's in trouble, so am I. 
Because sometimes I can think the trouble is some, I was that person who had a problem with curb cuts because I was the person who kept walking out into the street. Okay, that was me. Okay. But I had to understand those curb cuts are necessary. And to work along, and this was where some of our advocacy came in, that we could look at having curb cuts that allowed people who needed the curb cuts to use them, but were developed in a way that were safe for us as blind people. And you know what that came up? Color, contrast, you know what I'm talking about, and things like that that made curb cuts, yeah, and with the little bumps, you know, truncated domes. So we can still ask, we can still advocate and have a situation where everybody wins. Well, you should be able to talk. I'm, I'm Will. I live in Westchester, Pennsylvania, and um, it's been a wonderful discussion that you've had, and I, I'm impressed by the panelists, and thank you for that. Um, so I'm, I'm 68, and I've, I've lived a long time, obviously, and I know where I, where I started, uh, the things that I learned when I was young, and then observed and listened and have tried to adapt and change during the course of my life, and, and hopefully mm. have evolved some, and will hope, hopefully continue to evolve. But the thing, the starting point for me is always to do two things. The first thing is to, to really make sure I listen to what someone else is saying, or at least try to listen to what someone else is saying. And then once, once I've done that, then can I find something in my own life that helps me relate to that feeling or that experience and, and then put that to use as a way to, to move forward, to go forward in my life? Wow, because if I can relate that, you know, I, I can a friend of mine always tells me it's not understanding, it's appreciating. So if, if I can appreciate mm. somebody else's experience or point of view, then that helps me to to start to move not to not to toleration, but to acceptance, as someone else said earlier, because I think acceptance is, is the goal to, to say you are as you are and I am as I am. And, and let's live this in this world the best we can because we are all. Mm. Wow. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Any other hands raised? I like to, um, that comment because it just reminded me. Um, <clears throat> he said that uh, sometimes it's trying to unlearn something. Um, and I know for me personally, um, it, I had to be very intentional because for me, on the flip side of it, I wasn't um, raised a certain kind of way. I wasn't in that kind of environment. So for me, um, we grew up in a very um, middle class, uh, diverse community. Um, and my friends were very different, but we never focused on our differences. We just knew we were friends. We enjoyed each other's company. We played at each other's houses. We went to school together. And for me, it wasn't until getting into middle school and high school that I began to see the differences uh, that we faced um, with racism and uh, those kinds of things, because it was then, you know, we, we, we just thought we, we were just good friends and um, we shared some of the same things and we lived in the same community and we were now experiencing things like people were saying, Oh, that we were different. And we, we didn't see the differences. We only saw what we knew to be in common. Mm. And so for, for me, um, matriculated into adulthood has been more um, for me to be intentional that I don't learn things as they were. 
but to continue on the path what I already was given from birth and my upbringing that we treat people um, with respect and love because they are people um, first. Um, and I think that um, it, it's a process. It's a process. And, and definitely um, I, I just wanted to be um, true to who I am. Again, it's about being true to who I am and not learning things that go against uh, what we feel to be right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, thank you, Kashi. Um, welcome. You. Thank you. Anyone else? I do not see any other hands right now. Okay. Um, my chapter members are used to some things about me, and there's some things that I just try to leave people with. And there is a word that is um, Swahili. And I often say that when we get ready to close out, we just say that one word, and the word actually means together. And so the word is Harambe. Can you say that so we can hear you? You, don't, you know, Harambe. And so together, thank you, everyone Arambe. who came. Thank you today. I don't know, John, you have to come up with a song. Okay. Thank you to our panelists. Thank you to PCB. Thank you to ACB Media and everyone else who made this such a success. I learned a lot. You have given me a lot to think about. And knowing Chris as I do, this will not be the end of the discussion. So, again, thank you, and we'll see you. I think, Chris, next is the business meeting, right? Yep, at 1 o'clock. Okay. Thanks again, and see you soon. Have a good afternoon. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Bye-bye, all.